Today we are continuing our Gospel of John uh, message uh, series during these 40 days uh, of Lent at all our campuses uh, of hope. And uh, if you're catching up with us uh, today, we've been traveling through this Gospel and learning more about what John's heart is. And uh, if you've been following along the last couple of weeks, we've been going kind of chronologically and watching Jesus uh, through his ministry. And uh, if, you, if you look at these banners on the side, you might be wondering, what what is that all about? And up on the screen, some of the similar words are all words and phrases from the Gospel of John. And a lot of them are names for Jesus, who he is, which is really John's intent. That's really John's uh, heart. And so if you want to keep your Bibles open, we're going to be digging through that uh, this morning. And, and it's, it's fitting because the heart of John's Gospel is that we would know this morning that Jesus is the one. Everybody say, the one. Good enthusiasm. You're awake this morning. That's great. I love it. John's heart is that the, everybody would know that Jesus is the one, not just a prophet, not just uh, a good teacher or a good guy, that he is truly the one, which is really an important question for the nation of Israel because they've been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds and even thousands of years for this one who would come and who would rule and who would finally kick out the Romans and establish God's reign and rule on the earth. Is Jesus the one, that's a very important question if you're waiting for the Messiah. It's also a very important question in the wonderful world of dating. Are they the one? Now, uh, especially during those wonderful college years. Do you remember your college years? Maybe you don't remember them. Just kind of some weird, confusing years of your life. Do you remember those? Um, is this person... The one. So it was the end of the summer between my freshman and sophomore year in college, and I'm on. Uh, I'm at home in Story City on my my break, and uh, I'm doing what most college guys do on their summer vacation from college, playing golf in my front lawn, <laughs> which is normal, not really. And so I'm out there, and uh, I see this car honk and pull over. Uh, to the road, and it's my friend Katie. Now, I went to high school with Katie, so she's home, uh, and she has a friend with her. And uh, she's home because she's on the volleyball team at, at Waldorf uh, College, and so she pulls over, and uh, she's home from volleyball camp, and she's got a friend with her. And so she's all excited to see me, and we're connected and everything, and then out of the car walks her friend named Tiffany. And I'd never met her before, and she's in this volleyball outfit, because that's what volleyball players do. They just wear that. So we're, we're <laughs> she was dressed like a volleyball player, not dressed like a volleyball, right? Um, yes, I'm not going to go into detail on that. So there she is. And, uh, you know, I'm a college guy, so I'm trying to impress the ladies here. And uh, we're standing around talking. And for some reason, you know when you're kind of embarrassed or you don't really want to make eye contact with someone or you just don't really want to talk to them? You just kind of stare at the ground and hope they won't talk to you back? Well, she's staring at my feet, and I happen to be wearing sandals, and that is not my toe. I do not have a toe ring. So, <laughs> Who puts these pictures up there anyway? Um, that, is not, that is not my toe. Um, I think she's looking down at my feet, and so being the suave man that I am at the ripe old age of 20, uh, I go to this girl I've never met before, oh, you must be looking at my webbed toes. <laughs> First thing I ever said to her, great, 
Great pickup line. Very impressive. Um, so if you look at that, the first two toes, at, that's not my foot, but the first two toes after my big toe, I was born, they're stuck together. I'm human, I'm not an amphibian, just in case you're wondering, but it's just a weird little fun fact. So I thought I would share that with her. So her response is, okay. Uh, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's great. Uh, so needless to say, uh, so they get in the car and go back, and needless to say, our first meeting uh, did not go smoothly. Some people, they said, said when they first met their spouse, it was love at first sight, right? I think for us, it was like weirdness at first sight or something like that, uh, because uh, what I discovered is the story is she gets back into the car and looks at her friend Katie with fear and trepidation and says something to the effect of, Katie, are all the guys at Waldorf like that? So needless to say, she wasn't terribly impressed with me, but thankfully the story didn't end there, and there, and we got to know each other the next couple years, and uh, after some guy finally pulled it together, uh, we started dating, and we went through that lovely process, and, uh, and for some reason, um, I'm blessed, and now that girl that I made a complete fool out of my, myself in front of is my wife, but getting there in the dating process, there came a certain point where we'd be dating for long enough that I have some good guy friends around me, and they asked me that question that every young adult man dreads hearing when they're dating who's afraid of commitment. John, is she the one? Is she the one? I am afraid of commitment. I don't know what to say, right? And, of course, we know that probably after that first time or the first date that we went on, her girlfriends are asking her, so, do you think he's the one, right? The girls are asking that question long before the guys ever get to it. And I am so thankful that she did not judge me on my amphibian nature uh, because things worked out well. But um, it's really important to ask that question because when you're dating, if, you're, if they're not the one then what are you waiting around for? If they're not the one, then what are you waiting around for? And in a very similar but somewhat not similar way, when Jesus comes on the scene here in John chapter 9, that's the question that people are asking. That's the the story that frames this miracle today is everybody around Jesus is asking, is he the one? Is he the one that we've been waiting for? Is he the one? Messiah, the one that the prophets have been promising, because this Jesus, well, he's starting to do some weird things. He's starting to do some things like turning water into wine. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to go party, I want to go party with Jesus, right? (laughs) He's doing strange things like turning water into wine, and he's he's healing the sick. And here in John chapter 9, he's taking a guy that was blind from birth, and all of a sudden, he can see. He starts doing these things that, well... Only the Son of God would be able to do. And it's leading people to wonder, could this be the one? The one we've been waiting for. So Jesus healing a blind man in our reading today is much more than a miracle. It's all these prophets and all these promises come to life. It's the book of Isaiah come to life. The one that has been promised. So when we arrive on the scene in John chapter 9, if you want to open your Bibles there this morning, we encounter this story of blindness, of blindness. But what if I told you, what if I told you this morning that this story has very little to do with the man who's been blind 
from birth. It has very little to do with him. What if I told you in this entire story, the entire ninth chapter is about this man's story. What if I told you that out of everyone in the entire ninth chapter, the man who can't see actually has the best sight? Hear me say that again. What if I told you in this entire chapter, this man who couldn't see of all the people in this story actually has the best sight? You might be wondering, how can that be possible? That's what we're going to figure out today. So John chapter 9, verse 1. If you look at that story, it starts with, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And instead of me telling you about it, I want you to experience it. And so let's join Jesus on the dusty road that day and take a look at this story come to life. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would have been like for those of you that the sun is coming at your eyes right now? Imagine experiencing that for the first time. Imagine being this guy. You have nothing to compare it to. You have nothing to compare it to. Imagine. And and, and in that video, I love it because you can see the life. You can see the joy returning to his entire being, to his entire body. It's almost like he's been brought out of darkness into the light. was exactly what God had promised long ago in Isaiah, where this Messiah will come and he will be the light that shines in the darkness. He will cause the blind to see. Could Jesus be the one? Now, wait a minute, you say, John, this story wasn't, you're saying it wasn't really about that guy at all. That's not what the story is about. This guy that was miraculously healed. Well, believe it or not, we know that there's more than one way to be blind in this life, isn't there? We can be blind in all sorts of ways, so let's dig a little bit deeper. Verse 1, if you have your Bibles. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And this second verse is very confusing, it seems. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, hold on a second. Just stop there. What a dumb question for the disciples to ask, don't you think? I mean, these are disciples of Jesus. You'd think they'd be a little bit more loving, right? What do you do if you see a blind man on the side of the road, right? You look at him and say, who sinned to make you that way? Who in their right mind says that? I mean, when you go, if you're a care worker and you walk into a hospital room and there's a family standing around their family member who's been diagnosed with a terrible disease... What chaplain or pastor in their right mind would walk into that room and say, all right, looks like they're on their deathbed. Uh, Whose sin caused it? They'd be fired, right? But yet Jesus' disciples asked that very question. Who sinned? But believe it or not, before we jump all over them, the disciples who are good Jews are asking actually an important question and a very honest question. Because here's the context. You see, in Jesus' day, the rabbis, the religious leaders, taught that the illnesses or defects that people had in their bodies were actually caused by the sins of their parents or the generation ahead of them or the sins of that person themselves. And so in this case, this man was blind from birth. And so a good Jew, as many of the disciples were, would assume that the blindness came from his parents. 
He was blind from the womb, and so that sin had to come through the parents. The parents had to have done something in a previous life, and God is punishing them through making their kid blind. That's just the story that they believe. And they were operating, the rabbis, and this, as they taught all the Jews believe this, they were operating from what we call a narrative. A narrative or a story that gives order and meaning to life. And we would say that the story of Christianity is a meta-narrative, meaning a grand story, an overarching story that gives meaning to all of life. In fact, we've been learning about this specifically on Sunday nights during our core class that's going on. We've been learning how we are story-formed. We are shaped by stories. If you stop and think, you and I believe in dozens of narratives every day, and so our actions follow right along behind. I would think we all agree on the narrative, on the story that Jesus came, he died and rose again, and Jesus is coming back. Amen? Amen. Jesus is coming back. We agree on that story, and so knowing the end of the story, we have hope for today. We know that the troubles that we have in this lifetime are only for a time. Jesus is coming back and is going to make things right. I love that story. That is a great narrative to live your life by, but we're also... Framed, we're framed by big narratives and we're framed by little narratives that tell us what to believe. We're framed by smaller narratives, you know, like during a certain two weeks in March, there's just nothing better than March Madness. Can I get an amen from the congregation? I've done nothing in the last, I don't know, four days. No, I'm joking. It just, it grips you and this is the story that you live by. And so because we've experienced this story every March... People take off from work, right? I heard there's going to be a couple billion dollars of revenue lost in companies around the world because people don't show up for work during the first two rounds of the tournament, right? Basketball is framing the way that we live our lives. People don't go to work or they go to work and they don't work, right? We know that. And especially it's hard when it's like 75 degrees outside, right? It's hard to do that. Unfortunately, for Cyclone fans... The narrative, I'm not, I'm not a hater, the narrative, the narrative that many chose to believe that we were hoping to believe was true was I'm going to believe the narrative that Kentucky is really not that good, right? They don't really deserve a number one seed. Well, unfortunately, that narrative was not correct. And I was cheering loud, as loud as a Hawkeye can cheer and not be a sellout. It was a great game. It was an awesome game. It was a great season. So our narratives, our stories frame the way that we live our lives, what we believe, big or small, were formed by them. And so the narrative that had been around for thousands of years before Jesus comes in lots of different religions and a lot of ancient religions is that not just Christianity didn't even exist yet. This was all before Jesus. There was this belief no matter what religion that you were in, is if you did good things, the gods would like you and they would bless you with wealth and prosperity and health and all that. If the gods didn't like you, if you did something that angered the gods, well, then they would punish you. That was the grand narrative that a lot of people lived with and unfortunately, a lot of the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis picked up on this and they ended up twisting it and they would combine it with passages from the Old Testament and they said, that's what Yahweh is like too. That's what the God of Israel is like. 
Yahweh must be a God that gets angry and punishes people as well. That's the narrative that Jesus steps right into the middle of in John chapter 9 with the blind man. And we would call that a false narrative. A false narrative, a way of seeing the world and unfortunately a way of seeing and viewing God that just isn't true. But unfortunately, as a lot of Christians around the world, we still live in that false narrative. In fact, there was a, uh, a recent study done by the University of Baylor and it, it um, surveyed thousands and thousands of Christians as to these core understandings about the world and over 50% of this recent study just a couple years ago, 50% of people that believe in God believe that he is a judge and he's watching over us and he's ready to punish us for mistakes that we make. And you might be sitting there, oh, that's silly, I would never believe that. From time to time, I think we all do. If you're anything like me, maybe you've struggled with this idea and some of us have wondered, well, maybe if I'm a good person and I don't do anything wrong, then maybe God will love me more. Then maybe God will bless me. If I'm a good Christian, God will find me a job. I'll have that big house. I'll have that car I've always wanted. If I'm just faithful and do the right things, if I climb up that ladder of good deeds, then God's going to bless me, but I better not make a mistake. I wonder if that thing I did in high school, I wonder if that thing I did in college, I wonder if the pain and suffering I'm going through right now, is God, is that what he's like? Is he, is he getting back at me for that? We live in that reality a lot. And the problem is if we start to live by that belief, it can easy, easily shape our whole lives and we end up serving and worshiping what we believe is an angry God. What we view about God is the most important question that we could ever answer. What is he like? What is his character like? And the problem for the Jews around Jesus' time and the problem for us when we believe that false narrative, the problem with that is it's just not true. And here's why. Back to the story, verse 3. In response to the disciples' question, Jesus says, verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus says, it's not about that. It's not about that. But this happened, his blindness happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Our Savior, your Savior, comes and speaks right into this lie, into this false narrative that we often believe. And he says, you've got it all wrong. <laughs> this isn't about my father's anger. It's about my father's desire that comes right out of the prophet Isaiah. Listen, Jesus says, this is God's heart to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I don't think there's any better example of that than this man on the side of the road. Jesus says, this is to remind you, don't get this confused. <laughs> Jesus says, this is to remind you that anyone who ever sits down and reads John chapter 9, <laughs> whether it's you seeing it live right now, or whether it's you in Des Moines, Iowa in March of 2012 reading this story, Jesus says, don't forget, I didn't come to judge you, I came to rescue you. I didn't come to point fingers, Jesus. I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save the world. I came to meet you right where you're at and look you in the eyes and remind you this morning that God, my Father, is good and he's faithful and he's not going to give up on you. 
that's the true narrative about God. In case you didn't catch it, Jesus goes on later actually in Matthew chapter 5. And let's read this together. This is what uh, Jesus says. uh, Go ahead and go to the next slide. In Matthew chapter 5 to just further emphasize that point. And let's read this together. Your father in heaven causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, Jesus says, let's set the record straight. We live in a broken world where terrible things, where horrible things happen. And in this life, you may never understand why certain things happen the way that they do. But your job as my followers isn't to play God and tell someone else, well, you got sick because God's angry with you. Your job at Christians is not to point at other countries and to point at natural disasters and say, well, they must have been dirty, rotten sinners, so they deserve the earthquake. They deserve the tornado. That's not our job. There's a reason we're not God, and I am so glad we're not. (laughs) I am so glad we're not. That's his job. Instead, what the blind man saw that day is a God who gets down in the mud with us. A God who later on, it says at a funeral of his friend Lazarus, weeps. I don't know what God you see, but when I look at the scriptures, I see a God who cries with us. So whatever you're going through today, whatever you're dealing with, whatever hardships there are in your life, you have a God that gets down in the mud with you, who's right in the mess with you. This is our God. This is our God. And the truth is, to further emphasize that point, Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. We're all guilty. So this isn't about God punishing some people and not punishing other people. We all deserve that punishment, right? The wages of sin is death. We are all guilty and praise God that Jesus comes and he offers us grace. He offers us the gift of eternal life so that there's never any doubt of whether we could earn it or not. Because you're never going to be good enough. If you're going to believe and live by one narrative in your entire life, make it that narrative because that's the gospel. And it's beautiful. The free gift of eternal life. But see, the disciples had gotten twisted. That narrative had gotten twisted and it was be, because the disciples were blind. Isn't that funny? How John writes a story about a blind man, but it's the disciples who are blind. Blind to the God that Jesus knew. For the Jews, the story got twisted and the Jews were blind. For the Pharisees later on in the story, they, they get all over Jesus because he healed the guy on the Sabbath. The Pharisees are blind. These are the religious leaders of the day and instead of saying, wow, that's awesome, a guy got healed, can you believe it? They go, bah humbug. Right? They're a bunch of scrooges for pity's sakes. He did it on the Sabbath. You can't do it on the Sabbath because that interferes with our tradition probably just shut his eyes again. Bah humbug. How does, how does it get that way? The Pharisees were blinded by a narrative with a small and predictable God. But that's not the God Jesus knew. But I wonder, with all these false narratives, are we any different sometimes? 
Are you and I any different? Are there false narratives that we live into in our lives? Maybe for some of us, the narrative goes like this. And maybe this is right where you're at today. You know what? Life's not going at all the way that I planned. (laughs) I had all these plans and dreams for my life, and it's just not happening. Or maybe you're in these circumstances in your life and you're saying, it's just not changing, so therefore God must not care. I mean, this is very real. I was just talking with a guy this past week and he was telling me about how he's been out of of a job for eight months now. I mean, I know some of you, it's been longer than that. He said, I've been out of a job for eight months. He says, my marriage is on the rocks. And he says, I have three kids and I haven't talked to them in two and a half years. And so the false narrative that he steps right into and the words come right out of his mouth and it just breaks my heart. He said, John, I just, it's almost like God's just checked out on me. It's almost like God's just lost interest. These false narratives get their hooks in us so deep that we believe that's the truth. And if you've ever believed that lie, that God's checked out on you, maybe Jesus comes to you today, picks up some mud from the ground, and instead of just wiping it over your eyes, he wipes it on your heart. And Jesus reminds you today, Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Your God says to you today, I am not checked out. I am right in the middle of your life. False narratives, true narratives. Or maybe, I wonder for some of you, it's just, it's even more practical than that. It's how you're living right now. It's what you're doing here on Sunday morning. Your false narrative goes something like this. Oh, I, I think I understand what this Christianity thing is all about because it's this story that I learned from my parents, from, from my friends, and I grew up. Church is boring. Christianity is irrelevant. You know, faith is just kind of a part of life, right? And so we shouldn't get too excited about our faith because it's, if you have a pie and you cut it into slices... Church and Christianity and this Jesus thing, it's just a slice. It's just a part of life. It's just a slice of the pie. Because after all, Jesus is just one priority out of many. You may not say that. That's the story that you grew up in. That's the story that was modeled for you. And so parents, think about that. It's really important. What story are you telling your kids? Is faith a part of life or is it life? Is Jesus a priority or is he the priority? What story are you telling to your kids? And I wonder how many of us have lived with this narrative of churchianity rather than Christianity. Of churchianity rather than Christianity. Jesus comes to you today not with a a, a list of of ways to improve or to be, be good enough. Instead, I think Jesus comes and he picks up some mud and he looks you right in the eyes and he doesn't just wipe it on the eyes, he wants to wipe it again on your heart and he says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am life, Jesus says. And so maybe today it's time to experience God's love for you. 
Not the love that your parents told you about that God has for you. Not what your friends say. Not what your small group says. Not just what you sing about here on Sunday mornings. Is it real for you? Start writing a new story. You start writing a new story when you start to live a new story. And Jesus says, let me transform the way that you see worship. In fact, let me transform the way that you see Sunday morning. And in fact, that's exactly what God has been doing through us. And so I want to share with you a little bit about what God's been teaching us as a leadership team here at Hope Des Moines as we've been praying fervently about this time that we spend together on Sunday morning. What is it that we do here exactly besides donut holes and coffee and shake some hands? What is it that we're all about? And we've realized it's easy for us as a church to fall into this false narrative that goes something like this. Well, you know, the actual singing we do, the, 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 the time that we sing these songs, it's, it's just kind of a warm-up, right? I mean, it's, it's okay to just, it's something we do to just kind of fill the time before the sermon. You know, it's a good time to come in and take your coat off and get your coffee, you know, and get your refill and, and kind of wake up. And, and maybe if I catch a few lines of the last song, well, that's okay, because, you know, I'm just, I'm not really a song person. I'm I don't really sing. I don't really do that thing. Yeah, I sing in my car, but would I sing at church? Oh, no, never. I'm just not really a song person. So all these other people around me, they can have their worship time with God, but I'll just kind of chill. I'll just kind of hang out, and then we can move on. And don't hear me wrong. I'm going to be completely honest with you. You will never meet more of a non-morning person than me. Anybody not a morning person whatsoever? Oh, okay. When we start a 10 p.m. service, I'll let you know, okay? You will never meet more of a non-morning person than me. You think, oh, John's a pastor, so he just has all this energy on Sunday mornings. Little do you know, back in the back there, I've got those two liters of cherry Dr. Pepper, and I'm just chugging them before. I'm joking. That's not what I do. But it does take a lot of caffeine sometimes. It does take a lot of caffeine. So please, 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 please don't get self-conscious about, oh my gosh, now if I miss a worship song, everybody's going to be pointing their fingers at me and I'm a horrible, terrible Christian. That is not true. We actually love it that you're here and if you come 50 minutes early or 50 minutes late, it doesn't matter. We love it that you're here. We want you here. But if we're really honest, if we're really honest, as we've been praying, we've been talking about Jesus rubbing some mud in our own eyes And he says, this thing that we call worship is so much more than you could ever imagine. And so God's been drawing us back to the scriptures, and I don't know if it gets much clearer, but but what I see is that God longs for us to worship him with everything that we are, and that includes singing. In fact, singing is one of the most repeated commands in scripture. Over and over and over again, 121 times it says, shout to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing praises to the name, worship our God with gladness and singing, 121 times. And here's the best part of all for those of you that can't carry a tune worth a hilt. It says, make a joyful noise. What kind of a noise? Make a joyful noise. It doesn't say make an on-tune noise. And this should be good news for a lot of you, right? Some of you that stood by these people during worship, you're saying, praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord. This is somewhat biblical that they can't sing. Okay? It says, make it joyful because it's really about what's going on in here, not what's going on out there, right? 
It's all about what's going on here. So in this kind of new worship format we're going to move into, you're going to look around and you're going to see some people going like this. Okay? They're not airing things out. Okay? <laughs> Worshiping. You're going to see some people maybe dancing. Okay? That's allowed. It's okay. We can be dancing Lutherans. That works. Okay? You're going to see some people clapping. Right? But you're also going to see some people just standing. And maybe that's you. Maybe that's the most authentic way that you worship is just being. Resting with your eyes closed. Worship is an outward expression of an inward reality. An outward expression of an inward reality. And the same is true for those that clap or dance or whatever it is. And I hope that we create an atmosphere here where you have the freedom to worship however you want and it doesn't matter what's going on around you. It doesn't matter what songs we sing. Success for us on a Sunday morning is not what songs we sing. It's not what instruments we use. It doesn't matter if we're using an electric guitar or an organ, right? It says, worship the Lord. It doesn't say, worship the Lord, and you can only do that with an electric guitar. And you can only do that with a trap set. Now hear me say this, a successful morning for us is whether God was glorified. That's what success looks like here. Whether he got all the praise, more important than our personal preferences, more important than, than one, if there's a note out of tune, more important that it's what happens on the inside. Is God the ultimate treasure of our hearts? Is he the ultimate treasure of our hearts? If you think about it, worship is going on everywhere. You might think, this is weird. What, what when 150 people come to a school gym and sing for an hour on Sunday morning? That's just weird. Where else does this happen? It happens all the time. Carrie, skip ahead a few slides to that one slide, which I'm ashamed to put up. But there's worship happening everywhere. Now, is there some worship happening there? Okay, if you don't know who that is, ask someone under the age of 13, okay? That's Justin Bieber, and he's not as old as you, okay? He is being worshipped. There's some amazing worship going on there, right? What is worship is placing our affections on God. They are loving Justin Bieber with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and all their strength, right? Amazing worship, not so amazing God, right? We're all worshiping something. It's just a matter of who we're worshiping. Who are you placing your affections on? I love reading the Psalms, and I want to encourage you to just go do that this week to prepare your heart for what we're going to be doing at Hope Des Moines as we worship. Read the Psalms, and here's David, a man's man, enthralled with the beauty of God, so much so that David says over and over and over again in the Psalms, I just love being in God's presence. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care about my agenda, about my to-do list and my busy schedule. None of that matters right now because I am in the presence of the God of the universe. I want to share a story with you that kind of resonated with me this week. Donald Miller, who wrote the book Blue Like Jazz, who you might have heard of, tells the story of a guy named Alan, and he writes this. 
a guy we know named Alan went around the country asking ministry leaders, pastors, questions. So he went to successful churches and asked the pastors what they were doing and why what they were doing was working. Sounded pretty boring except for one visit that he made to a man named Bill Bright, the president of a big ministry. And so Alan said he was a big man full of life who, who listened without shifting his eyes. And Alan asked a few questions, and I don't know what they were, but the final question that he asked to Dr. Bright was, what does Jesus mean to you? What does Jesus mean to you? And Alan said that Dr. Bright could not answer the question. He said Dr. Bright just started to cry. He sat there in his big corner office executive chair and just wept. When Alan told that story, I wondered what it was like to love Jesus like that. I wondered, quite honestly, if that Bill Bright guy was just nuts or if he really knew Jesus so well that at the very mention of his name, he wept. I knew that I would like to know Jesus like that, with my heart and not just my head. I felt like that would be the key to something. It's not about the tears. It's about the intimacy behind the tears. It's not about the tears. It's not about what's going on out here. It's about the intimacy that's going on behind that. And so, beginning today, I'm going to invite the band up, and starting today, and we're going to get in the rhythm of this, we shifted things around in the worship order a little bit to allow all of us to do just that. And if you're used to saying, got my sermon, I'm out the door, I'm sorry, but we need to respond to God. There's nothing else that I would rather do. There's nowhere else that I would rather be. And so the band is just going to lead us in some worship. And what we're going to do is there's just going to be some questions up on the screen. And we just invite you to pause. Scripture invites us not to just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. To not just hear it and rush. What would it look like if you were fully present here on a Sunday morning? What would it be like to know Jesus like that? That at the very sound of his name, you'd just say, <laughs> I love him. And I want to know him more deeply than I ever have. And I don't, I don't care what's going on later today. I don't care about the busyness and all the, the, the things on my to-do list this week. Right now, there is nothing more important than connecting and having a conversational relationship with the God that created me. What could be better than that? And so we're just going to have some time of worship. We're just going to sing. We're going to allow you to just be, and we invite you to be fully present and just focus on these questions that are going to be up on the screen and just process through God's promises that have just been proclaimed to you. And then Kim and the band are going to lead us into some singing. And as we do that, I don't want you to think about Justin Bieber, but I want you to think about the affections of worship. And I want you to put everything else aside and not worry about anything else except saying, God, here I am. 
speak.